Well, it's good to be with you all today. Uh, I don't normally uh, get to have this uh, deep baritone voice, but as he mentioned, uh, I've got four kids, and when one of them gets sick, you're just biding your time, waiting for it to catch you. So uh, eventually it uh, ran through all of us, but uh, good to be here, uh, thankful uh, for this church, for Chris and Crystal uh, and their ministry here. Uh, Chris has become a dear friend over the past few years, uh, and just want to encourage you as a church, I know this is week one of his sabbatical, um, just to thank you uh, for the gift that you're giving him. I had the opportunity to do this a couple years ago with our church. Um, and yeah, it's, it's awkward at first, and there's lots of questions at first, uh, but you don't know the blessing uh, this is going to be uh, to Chris personally, but also to their family, uh, and just for his longevity here as a pastor. Uh, and so just to encourage you in that, but as we just read, we're going to be in Ephesians 1, 1 and 2 this morning. Uh, we're going to get there in just a second, but as we uh, get ready to, to get into this scripture, I just want you to think about something, uh, that all of us understand how powerful labels can be. Uh, that growing up, maybe when you were in junior high or high school, uh, you knew the effect that, or just uh, how easy it was uh, for us to place labels on people. Those are the athletes, those are the smart kids, those are the whatever, the list goes on and on. And growing up, you probably had some labels you wore, you know, knew how uh, people saw you, what they thought of you, what you were supposed to be into or good at. And as we, we think about that, one of the things we realize is this, is that once we take a label on ourselves, one, uh, we begin to to attach some sense of identity to that, that it's not just this thing I do anymore, it's not just this thing I'm known for, uh, but this is who I am. And not only that, but, but you begin to feel some kind of pressure to, to live up to that, that if, if you've been labeled with something that people like about you, you're the, the funny person to have around, and whenever you're around people, there was that pressure to entertain them or live up to that identity that they had given you. Uh, one of the things that, that we've been realizing throughout the years is this, is that the way we identify ourselves uh, can have a major impact on how we live. That, that typically what we do, our behavior, flows out of what we think of ourselves. Uh, I, I don't know if you listen to TED Talks much or if there's still a thing, but uh, recently or in the past, uh, an attorney named Brian Stevenson was giving a talk and he discussed how his beloved grandmother used a sense of identity to motivate him to do good. Uh, he went on to tell, she told him he was special and he was meant for great things. Stevenson had to promise her he'd always do the right thing, even when it's hard, and that he would never drink alcohol. Those were the two things that she wanted. At 52, Stevenson still hasn't tried alcohol, and as an attorney, he's had the honor of arguing cases so frequently before the Supreme Court that at his most recent appearance, one justice asked you again from Time Magazine. Uh, and uh, what he, he goes on to talk about uh, just how powerful his grandmother shaping his identity was to the person he ended up being. And all of us recognize this, how we identify ourselves, how we identify, identify others has a dramatic impact on the way we live. I've seen this in my kids. Uh, again, mentioned I had four kids, eight, seven, three, and one. So uh, lots of, of fun and busyness at home. But I've seen in their own lives, just in silly ways, how when they think they are someone, it changes the way that they act. That my son, I've got two sons, can throw a cape on, can throw a costume on, 
And all of a sudden, they can stand on the table and jump off and try and fly because they're a superhero now, and that's who they are, and that's what they're supposed to be able to do. And I've made many midair catches of little boys trying to do things they had no business trying to do simply because they believed they were somebody else for a moment. Uh, Again, we get that. And so the question I want to ask as we get into Ephesians 1 this morning is how do you identify yourself? And one of the things we're going to begin to see as we walk through Ephesians 1 is this, is that there are lots of ways that we identify ourselves and those labels that we've put on ourselves, how we think about ourselves, drastically shapes the way in which we live. And as we look at a book like Ephesians, what we begin to discover is this, is Paul is using a large chunk of the book of Ephesians trying to help the the, the Ephesian church understand this reality. Now that you're following Jesus, now that you're a believer, here is your new identity. Now that you've made this decision to be in a relationship with Jesus, your identity has changed. And if your identity has changed, then life is going to begin to look different because of that. And one of the things we're going to see this morning is this, is that I think a lot of the struggles Christians experience in their walk with Jesus, at least struggles I had in my relationship with Jesus over the years, A lot of that stemmed from not seeing myself as God sees me. And kind of the big idea for this morning is going to be this. You're not going to be able to become who God created you to be until you begin to understand what God thinks about you. And that when you begin to to meditate on that, to press that in deep, some of the sin struggles, some of the difficulties of the Christian life, they don't magically go away, but you'll begin to see progress because your conception of who you are changes as you allow God to tell you who you are now that you're a part of his family. So we'll go back to that text we just read, Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we read letters in the New Testament, it's easy to skip over these opening few verses. I want to encourage you not to do that as you're reading your Bible because first, one of two things. One, when someone would write a letter in the New Testament, typically uh, they're going to introduce you to, here's the big ideas for this letter I'm about to write. I'm going to tell you the two or three things that you need to pay attention to as I'm writing this letter. And Paul does that as he opens up Ephesians, but he also teaches us some things in the words that he uses here. And what I want to key in on is this, is that Paul says, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And I want to uh, land on that phrase for a second, because Paul says he's writing to saints, And I want to spend part of our morning just asking this question, what does it mean that Paul says he's writing to saints? How does somebody become a a saint? What does that mean that somebody would be in that category? One of the most common words that Paul uses in his letters for believers is this concept of saint. And literally, it's someone who's holy. That if you're just looking for what's the definition of what Paul's talking about, someone who has been set apart by God. And so as Paul writes to this church, he says, I'm writing to those who have been set apart by God. I'm writing to those who are holy, who are righteous. And so as we see this maybe more big picture within Scripture, one of the things you you begin to see is this, is that in the Bible there's two categories of people. There's more than that, but at one level there's this distinction made. There's sinners and there's saints. 
And as scripture lays this out for us, we find this first category of people all the way back in the book of Genesis, okay? So from the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve. He creates the world. Everything's uh, good and God's pleased with what he's created. But then by the third chapter of the Bible, first couple of pages... People have rejected God, they've rebelled against God, they've, they've done what they've wanted to do, and because of that, they began to push God away and deserved uh, punishment from God for it. That this all gets laid out early on in Scripture, and, and because of that rejection of God, which is called sin, because of that sin that Adam and Eve commit, they step into this category of person who has pushed God away and left to themselves uh, would stand under the judgment of God. And scripture goes on to say that we were affected by that sin and that ultimately all people left to themselves find themselves in that place. Guilty before God because of our sins, standing under the judgment of God. Paul writes this a chapter later in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul paints with this very broad brush here. Like the rest of mankind, like all people, all humanity, rebels against God, rejects God, we're under the judgment of God, and so you have this category of person referred to over 300 times in the Bible, they're sinners, Okay? And all of us at one point were in this place. But there's this second group of people we just described because Paul writes to saints who are in Ephesus. And if, if there's this group of people against God, we want to ask the question, well, how do we get into this group of people who are, who are for God, who are part of the family of God? And so Paul writes to these saints, and when you just think about that word saint, what comes to mind? Uh, for most people, they use that term to talk about someone who's maybe the most spiritual person you know. Uh, for some uh, people, it's a, a specific category uh, of person. For, for a lot of people, you, if you tried to think of uh, someone in your life who's a saint, it'd be the nicest person you know. It'd be the most sacrificial person that you know. It would be people we put up on a pedestal uh, because of the way in which they live. And so for most of us, uh, when we use the word saint, we use it to talk about someone who acts in such a way that they, they deserve that title. They've earned that title from other people because of their life. And yet, uh, we want to ask the question, well, how does Paul use this word in Ephesians here? Who is Paul saying are the saints who are in Ephesus? And we see this in those opening verses where Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, and Paul defines saint very differently. That the apostle Paul says a saint is anybody who's put their faith in Jesus. He says if you've trusted Jesus, if you're in a relationship with Jesus, you are in the category of saint. And as we, we start to look at how Paul uses this word, one of the things we begin to discover is this. It has very little to do with what you actually do, Okay. Uh, so what I mean by that is this, is that, again, Paul has just defined the saints as someone who's faithful to Jesus, someone who's holy, someone who's set apart. And the question becomes, well, uh, for those who are faithful to Jesus, how do they become holy? How do they become set apart? And throughout the New Testament, we're told this story that ultimately we're made holy, ultimately we're, made, we're set apart 
Not because of how we live, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. That Jesus uh, goes to the cross and is put to death, ultimately, we're told, uh, in our place for our sin. That when he goes to the cross, he takes the judgment of God that we deserved. He takes our shame on himself, our guilt on himself. And for those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, as Paul has just said, that God looks at them and sees them as uh, forgiven and sees them as uh, without sin because Jesus goes to the cross and, and takes that judgment in our place to, to free us from that judgment of God that we were under. But that we're also told that we're holy and set apart because Jesus comes to earth, lives a perfect, sinless life while he's here. And again, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, what happens? Jesus gives us credit for that perfect life that he lived. And so in at least two ways, Paul can write to these saints who are in Ephesus and call them saints. Why? Because they're faithful to Jesus and Jesus had died for their sin and Jesus had given them uh, his righteousness. And so Paul could rightly say, I'm writing to those who are holy, who are righteous, who are set apart by God, not because of anything that they've done, but because of the work of Jesus and because you're faithful to Jesus, you are a saint. Now that still is a hard term for some of us to describe ourselves with. You don't just go around calling yourself a saint. That'd be a pretty presumptuous thing to do. Uh, One of the things I want you to see is this, and hopefully this is encouraging. In the New Testament, God sees average, imperfect people who still struggle with sin as saints. He has to. Paul's not writing to a perfect church in Ephesus. He's definitely not writing to a perfect church in Corinth. And if, have you been through 1 Corinthians, Chris? So, okay, that'll be a fun one. Uh, but uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.1, he says to the saints who are in Corinth. Now, if you know anything about that letter, it's really surprising that Paul would open that letter that way. Because within that church, there are some who are abusing spiritual gifts. They're using spiritual gifts for their own fame and notoriety, that there are some in that church that he talks about sexual immorality that has to get dealt with, that this is one you don't hear about often, uh, people struggling with getting drunk at communion regularly, okay? And I've got a lot of problems at my church, that hasn't been one yet, okay? And so Paul has to address that, and yet Paul addresses that church to the saints in Corinth, And one of the things you begin to discover as you think about this and meditate on this is this, is that there is a label that God has given to his people that they haven't earned, that they haven't deserved, but that is rightly theirs because they are set apart by the work of Jesus. And what I want to spend the rest of our time doing this morning is asking this, if we saw ourselves in that way, what begins to change about the Christian life? How do you think God sees you? I think if we're being honest, a lot of us assume God kind of tolerates us. That yeah, we're a part of the church. Yeah, we're a part of the family of God. Yeah, God saved me. I mean, he's not necessarily pleased with me, happy with me, that uh, maybe it's kind of like there's always that person at every family reunion that the family's embarrassed of, okay? If you don't know who that is in your family, just think about it, okay? But we all have that person. Um, 
And I think a lot of us can tend to think that that's how God sees us, that why did I let you in? But you're in now. So, And instead of really beginning to process and understand, as hard as it is to imagine this, God sees me as holy, and God sees me as set apart for him. As we look at this again, if you've put your faith, your trust in Jesus, you are rightly called a saint in the eyes of Paul, in the eyes of Jesus. And again, I simply want to ask the rest of this morning, what changes if we see ourselves in that way? The first thing that changes is this. It changes how we think about our sin. It changes how we think about our sin. Here's another way to ask the identity question. Are you a saint who occasionally sins, or do you see yourself as a sinner who occasionally does something right? Okay? Are you a saint who occasionally sins, or are you a sinner who occasionally does something right? Now, I'm a part of a church that theologically would be very close to this church here. And one of the things that we, we preach over and over is how much the work of Jesus in our life is undeserved, is the grace of God, that our, our salvation, that the hope that we have for life beyond this has nothing to do with what we do. And we drive home how undeserving we are of that love of God in our life. But we can focus on that so much without also bringing in this, this other piece, this other category that there is this good radical change that God has now worked in our life, and we can miss how God sees us now. I think a lot of Christians think about themselves as, I'm a deeply sinful person, and I just happen to be forgiven, and and I know I'm going to continue to struggle, but nothing's really changed for me outside of, now I'm just a part of the family of God. But again, if you look through Scripture, one of the things you begin to discover is this. Maybe once or twice in the New Testament does the Bible talk about a Christian as a sinner. And repeatedly, hundreds of times, Paul says they are people who are in Christ. They are people who are saints. They are people who are holy and set apart. And it's a very different mindset than we're tempted to have in terms of what is our identity now that we're in Jesus. One of the things that becomes true for the believer is this, is that we're no longer defined by the sin that's in our life. And that's a difficult hurdle to get over for a lot of people. Uh, Most of us would admit there's a sin we've struggled with for a long time. There's some area of our life that's just tough to give over to Jesus. And we could all share, there's, there's one thing, whatever it might be, might be anger, might be gossip or lust or greed or, or there's all kinds of, uh, one of the great things about the Bible is this, is that it will find something wrong with you, okay? And if you, if you read the Bible and don't find something wrong with yourself, you're not paying attention, okay? Because it'll catch all of us. And so we all have something we struggle with. And we all have something we've maybe for years have been unable to overcome, get rid of, and we've asked God to help us get rid of this sin. And you've probably gotten to your pla- the place where you tell yourself this, I just do that because I'm that kind of person. I, I, I'm greedy because I'm a greedy person. I struggle with lust because I'm a lustful person. I get angry because I'm an angry person person and you can begin to see how you're starting to identify yourself by your sin and not what Jesus has done for you. Now it's not wrong to identify the sin that's in our life. We should and we should repent of it and we should deal with it and it's going to continue to be a struggle. We're not going to completely overcome it this side of heaven. 
But if you're regularly telling yourself, I'm the kind of person who does this thing, don't be surprised when you keep doing it. That when I regularly tell myself, I'm the kind of person who struggles with this, it shouldn't surprise me when I continue to struggle with it because I've identified myself in that way. And yet Paul and Jesus throughout the New Testament identify believers in very different ways than we identify ourselves. This isn't only true of what we read in Scripture. Uh, That Time Magazine article I noted up front goes on to talk about this, that the power of identity can radically shape the way in which we live. It goes on, but what does any of this have to do with health care? One of the best ways to change health behavior, it turns out, is to change a person's self-identity. When a smoker begins to view herself as a non-smoker or a teen sees binge drinking as something people like me don't do, behavior change is typically more lasting than if the person's sense of identity is not invoked. Research on everything from exercise, eating behavior, sexuality, political action, drug use suggests that having one's identity wrapped up in a particular behavior is a crucial motivating factor to sustaining it. Once you see yourself as a runner, not running becomes far harder to do, for example. Now, some people will hear that and say this, isn't that just applying the power of positive thinking to the Christian life? Isn't that just uh, wishing that we were somebody we're not? Uh, Where is Jesus in the midst of this? Here's the difference for the Christian, that when this article talks about the power of of self-identity, it's saying, tell yourself you're somebody that you're not, and eventually you'll become that person. Whereas Scripture's telling us, tell yourself, this is actually true of you. This isn't a wish. This isn't something we hope happens in the future. You're changing reality because reality is different than we often think about it. I'm not hoping I become a saint. No, God says you are a saint now. I'm not hoping that I'm forgiven. No, Scripture tells me I'm forgiven now. I'm not hoping that I can be a part of the family of God. The Bible tells me I'm in the family of God now. And so I'm not just hoping for some future version of me. I'm letting Scripture change me and shape me to see who I actually am now that I have a relationship with God. And when we begin to see that and press into that, life begins to look different. We deal differently with our sin. This is how Paul wrestled with his sin. Romans 7, 19 to 20, we see some of this come out. For I do not, uh, I do, not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. In verse 20, Paul seems to be saying this, that when sin continues to be a part of my life, when I continue to struggle in my relationship with God, he gets that at some level that's not him. That's not who he is. That's not what God had done in his life. And, and he continued to struggle with it, and he's not justifying it or letting go of responsibility for his sin. But I think what he's recognizing is this truth, that's not who I am anymore. And he saw the separation from the sin that he still struggled with and the new creation that he was in Jesus now. And when he began to live out of that, his life began to change. Once you start to see yourself as God sees you, that's a difficult thing to do. 
you will start to, to have victory over sins you haven't had victory over. You will uh, start to see more fruit in your Christian life. You will take further steps in your relationship with Jesus because when you see yourself in your new identity, there's going to be new behaviors that follow that. Some people have asked, oh, well, I, I don't know how to, it's hard to see ourselves as God sees us. So one encouragement I gave our church is this, as you read through the Bible, anytime you come across something where God says, this is how I see you, this is what I think about you, just start a list. And maybe it's every morning, maybe it's during lunch, maybe it's sometime during the day, just taking a few minutes to remind yourself, this is who I am. Because it takes that kind of training, allowing the word of God to speak to us, to help us actually believe that this is the work that God has done in us now. And this leads to our second point, and I think the second point has a lot to do with why we struggle to see ourselves in this way. This also changes how we repent of our sin. So not just how we think about our sin, but how we repent of our sin. As we said, you're a saint, but there's still going to be sin in your life. In 1 John 1, 8, John reminds the church, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, John, just uh, open and honest, and you recognize this, that we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. Uh, theologian Anthony Hokma says this about our new condition in Christ. It's important to note, however, that while in Christ we're genuinely new, we're not completely new until the resurrection. Believers should see themselves and each other as persons who are genuinely new, though not yet totally new. And I think we all feel that as followers of Jesus. We are a new creation, but we're not perfect yet. And so as we wrestle with that reality, so you're a saint who will sometimes sin. And if this is true, then how do we deal with that remaining sin in our life? There are a number of ways that the Christians typically react to their sin. One way uh, is to simply justify it. And we all find ourselves at, at moments like this in life that we pass it off, that it's, it's not that big of a deal, that it's, it's not something I need to worry about, that there are people doing way worse things than I'm doing, and so God's probably more concerned with, with other people. It's kind of that idea that if you're speeding, but you're not going as fast as the person going fastest on the road, then the cop shouldn't pull you over. Kind of that kind of thinking in our relationship with God. And yet we, we understand that if we truly love Jesus, we can't justify disobedience to him. But secondly, many Christians carry their sin around and believe they need to be punished for it in some way for God to love them again. Then I talk to a lot of people in our church, and there have been times in my life where this has been true of me, where I sin and, and somehow I've gotten this into my head, that I need to, to uh, I have to undergo some amount of suffering or guilt or shame or hardship to pay for my sin in some way, that, that I'll know that God truly loves me again when I feel bad enough about it, when I've cried about it, when I've had enough sleepless nights about it. Again, some of us believe until we've beaten ourselves up enough for our sin, then things aren't right between us and God. And maybe some of you are carrying some sin around like that right now, that there's, there's things you've done past week, past month, past however long, 
that you can't forgive yourself of, that, that just hangs over you, that you're not sure about your relationship with, with God because of these decisions that you've made and you believe that there's gonna be some point where you feel bad enough about it, then God will finally forgive you for those things. And the question is, is that the way that the Bible calls us to deal with our sin? Typically, there's two ways we can deal with with sin, that we can either feel condemnation from our sin or conviction over our sin. And that it's the difference between those two realities that set apart a saint who is secure in their relationship with Jesus and someone who isn't as clear on what Jesus has accomplished for them. Uh, When we feel condemnation for our sin, that's from the devil. And condemnation for our sin is this, it leads to despair, it ends in sorrow, it leaves us in doubt about our relationship with Jesus, it makes us believe we can't change, we begin to identify ourselves by it, and we can tell we're feeling condemnation for our sin because it leads to a hopeless feeling. I can't overcome this. I don't know what to do with this. I know God isn't pleased with me. I'm uh, just very unsure about who we are or how God sees us. And yet in a passage like Romans 8.1, Paul reminds the church, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean we don't feel sorrow over our sin. And that's where conviction comes in. Now, feeling convicted over our sin is, comes uh, for someone who's secure in their relationship with Jesus. They know the work that Jesus has done to make them right with God. And it doesn't lead to this feeling of hopelessness, that conviction's from God, and that ultimately it leads to life and it ends in joy. It's this reality, I'm not who I'm supposed to be yet, but by the power and grace of God, I can become that. And it's this realization, finding the areas in our life that need to come under the lordship of Jesus, finding the areas that need to change if we're going to be who Jesus wants us to be. But it's a a conviction that's secure in just because of the sin. I know I'm right with Jesus. I know I'm secure in my relationship with God. I know that Jesus is changing me into who he wants me to be. And there's not the hopelessness and the despair that comes along with condemnation. It's a lot like when my kids do dumb stuff, and they do lots of dumb stuff, okay? Just if you're a parent, you know this. At eight, seven, three, and one, there's a lot of mistakes my kids make. And we've, um, they all got fidget spinners this week, and they have fought over them for a week. Uh, The three of them ordered them together, two of them got them, one didn't, and there have been a lot of fights in our house this week that we've been dealing with over Fidget spinners, and that's a weird sentence to say, but it's something we're dealing with. Now, when my kids make mistakes, here's what they understand. There might be moments where they're going to suffer consequences for the mistakes that they make. There might be moments where they're disciplined for the things that they do. But one of the things we repeatedly tell them, and I think one of the things they truly understand is this, there's no mistake that you can make that will ever remove you from this family, That even in the midst of discipline, even in the midst of consequences, there's a a confidence and an assurance that they have that you're always going to be my kids. I'm always going to be your dad. Your mom's always going to be, we're always going to love you. And when you're in Christ, the same kind of confidence should come. You're going to sin. You're going to stumble. You're not going to live a perfect life. But if you are in Jesus, there's not a mistake that you can make that's ever going to remove you from the family of God. 
And you see that confidence that, yeah, Jesus might discipline me for holiness, that there might be consequences in this life I have to face because of my sin. But if I'm faithful in Jesus, if I'm a saint, if I'm forgiven, if, if, I, if Jesus is right when he said on the cross that it is finished, that there's a confidence I can have in my relationship with God, that I'm going to deal with my sin, but I'm a part of the family of God. And that the love of the Father is always there for me. And condemnation cannot be a part of that kind of life. Cannot be a part of that kind of relationship. Some of you have been carrying guilt and shame for years. You've been uncertain about your relationship with, or with God for years because uh, you, you have this mindset of you don't truly believe that God could forgive you. You don't truly believe that that's the way that God sees you. And I've had counseling sessions after sermons with people who would say things to me like, I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself yet. Maybe you said that about yourself. Now, I wouldn't say this to them. I wouldn't say it like this at the time. That'd be a pretty bad pastor, okay? But eventually we get to this point. That's one of the most blasphemous things you can say, okay? And here's why I say that. You're putting yourself in God's place at that point. You're saying there is something I will not allow God to do. I will not allow God to define. And you're cheating yourselves from the blessings of God in that moment. That God has forgiven you, has loved you, has pursued you, has finished the work to put you back in a relationship with him. And if God is able to look at you and say, you are forgiven for your sin against me, how can we tell him that we're really not? How can we not enjoy that blessing? If if you're in that place, here's what I want to say as we wrap up this morning. If you love Jesus... The penalty for your sin is paid. The work of Jesus in your place is finished. That you are secure in your relationship with Jesus. That when Jesus says that those who are his, he will hold in his hand and no one will take them out. That he's saying that to you, to those of you who are faithful in Jesus. And one of the things that we, we do as believers is this, is that we spend time in the word listening to Jesus speak to us so that we can begin to believe the things that God has said about us. We begin to see ourselves in the way that God sees us. And when we truly begin to believe that we are holy, not some future version of us, we are forgiven, not when we get our life together, but because of what Jesus has done, that we are set apart, that we are saints. It'll radically change our relationship with Jesus. It'll radically change the way that we live. And it will radically change the level of joy and peace and comfort and satisfaction that you know in this life. Because again, it's not on you to create that, but God has given that to you. I'm going to pray and then we'll move on. Father, thank you so much for this morning and our time together. God, I pray this for this church, that they would believe, begin to believe the things that are true about them. God, that you would open our hearts to your word, that you would open our hearts to your truth, and that, Father, above all else, if you say something about us, that we would believe that in spite of our doubts, in spite of our skepticism, in spite about 
just how unsure we are of ourselves, that we would allow your truth to define us. Father, we love you. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.